Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What's up, everybody, and welcome to What's in Your Glass. I'm your host, Carmelo Anthony. Let's welcome today's guest. You know him as the New York Times bestselling author, combat veteran, and entrepreneur. He formerly served as the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, um, an, an organization that, that targets poverty in New York City. Uh, and, and, and most recently, earlier this summer, uh, he announced his candidacy for governor of Maryland. So please welcome to the show, my brother, Mr. Wes Moore. Hello, cheers, Mr. Westmore. Absolutely. So we usually have we usually have we usually have people clapping in the background and and all of that, but that's post production. Don't worry about that. (laughs) 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 Nah, but on 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 today's show, man, I I like to start off with uh, I want to know what my guest is drinking. So what what are you what are you drinking right now? What's in your glass? Well, what what is in my glass is Elk Run. It's a cab. It's uh, mm. it's actually a cab from uh, here in Frederick, Maryland. So Frederick, Maryland. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, so 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 for those who don't know, Maryland actually has quite a few quite a few vineyards, and Absolutely. Uh, actually some very good vineyards. And uh, and so Frederick is over in Western Maryland. Uh, it's actually it's only a it's a you know about an hour, a little less away from uh, from from your hometown of Baltimore, uh, and uh, and uh, and it's actually, it's a it's a it's a good cab. It's a good cab. So I have to try that. I got to try that. I, like, I got to try I, that. We're gonna send you some, Mello. We're gonna send you some. <laughs> I, I, I need that. Uh, I'm drink. I'm drinking. I'm drinking a white wine today. Um, little Merceau, 2017. I usually don't do the nice. white, but I I, I figure look. I'm, I'm with the next governor of Maryland. I might as well do some, you know, so, so I, need, I need to celebrate with him. So cheers. Cheers, cheers my brother. brother. It's great to be with cheers. you always. Always. Wes, I, I want to start by, by taking it all the way back because, uh, you know, similar than, you know, much like myself, you you grew up in both Maryland and New York. Um, what, what, was, what was your childhood like kind of growing up in, in those two places? You know, um... I mean, for like, like, like a lot of us, uh, you know, we end up moving around a lot and, uh, and it's actually, it's, there's really two reasons why kids oftentimes move, right? It's, it's opportunity or it's tragedy. And it usually falls into one of those two buckets. Right. And, and I think about it in my life where I have had the chance to live in both Maryland and New York and both of those two things were the motivation at times where, you know, I was born down in Maryland and, um, mm. and I spent, you know, I spent the first four years of my life, uh, really five years of my life down here. But when I was four years old, I watched my dad die in front of me. 
Um, wow. he had a, uh, he had a, uh, a, a, a treatable virus, but when he went to the hospital, you know, he was, you know, his clothes were disheveled and he was unshaven and there was assumptions that he didn't have insurance. And when my mom came to the hospital, uh, to check on him, they asked her questions like, is he prone to exaggeration? And he was asked to leave the hospital and they told him that, but if it gets worse, just come back, go home, get some rest. But if it gets worse, it comes back five hours and five hours later, he died in front of me. And so my mother then became a widow with three children. She was going to raise on her own. And that was not the life that she expected or prepared for. And so she had a really difficult time. We didn't live in a good neighborhood. Uh, and she, uh, and she needed help. So she called my grandparents. My grandfather was a minister in the South Bronx and my grandmother was a school teacher. And, uh, and it was tragedy that forced us to move up to the Bronx and go live with my grandparents. And again, the neighborhood that I lived up in, in, in the Bronx in New York wasn't a great neighborhood. And I found myself getting to a, a lot of trouble and uh, to the point where literally I was 11 years old when I first felt handcuffs on my wrist up in New York. And, but when I was 14, my mom got a job. And that was the first job that actually gave her benefits. It was the first job that allowed her to work one job instead of multiple jobs the first job that gave her reliable hours. And it was that job that then moved us back from New York, back down to Maryland. That job was uh, at a place called the Annie E. Casey Foundation, which is in, in Baltimore. And so Absolutely. then it was an opportunity that then moved us back. So, you know, for, for so many of us, for so many, so for so many of our kids, right? It's, it's tragedy or opportunity that causes the moves. And I think for most of my life and for much of my childhood, I saw how both of those two things reared their head to show how we kept on having different places that we called home. That story is very similar to, to my stories, you know, leaving New York and growing up and going to Baltimore, thinking that things would be a lot different in, in, in Baltimore. <laughs> it, it, it actually was worse. It actually right. was worse. But you don't, you, don't, you don't know that because everybody's going through the same thing. Everybody's right. dealing with the same issues. So... I didn't know it was worse. I actually loved it. I fell in love with it. It was became who I am, and I became, you know, a product, a product of that environment. Yeah. So I, I understand. I understand the you know, two sides of, of of how you think when you said you was growing up in there. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk about uh, a little bit at your time at, at at Valley Forge Military Academy, and and more specifically the the events leading up to you going there. Like something that something that stuck out to me was I, I was thinking about this interview. Uh, was when you said, uh, I think it was a People article from 2017. Um, you, you said, at, at some point, what, what I began to understand is that my life had uh, a relevance to someone other than just me. Yes. I want to make sure I got that right. Did I, did I quote that, that right? right? You got that right. Uh, that, that, that really hit me. And I, I, I talk about this in, in, my memo, in my book as well. That's right. What was the, pro what was the process like for you um, or, you know, until you were able to understand that it wasn't just about you. Like, when was that moment that clicked? Yeah. And by the way, let me just say, I would remiss to say, I was so honored to get a chance to read an advanced copy of this book. I've been, I telling, I've been telling everybody who will listen, <laughs> just wait until this book drops. Because your book is special, man. Your book Thank is you, special. And I'm, and, I'm, Thank you. and I'm excited for the world just to see how special this story is. So, so I appreciate awesome. well done, man. Well done. Absolutely. You know, and, and honestly, I, I think it was, it was, it was one of these things when that it's, it's that journey into manhood 
where I think when people say, well, what is, what is the definition of manhood to me? And, and I felt like part of it was always part of a challenge for me where I felt like people always had different interpretations, right? If you talk to 12 different, 12 different young men and you said, well, what does it mean to be a man? You might give 12 different answers, right? Um, but for me, it oftentimes came back to this idea was, of at what point are you responsible for something bigger than yourself? At what point do you actually take responsibility for the actions of others as well? So then it's not just about what you do, but it's about what you influence. And, um, and I remember for me, military school was a, was a big deal because, I mean, I got sent there when I was 13. I had a mandatory year and my mother had been threatening me with going there ever since I was eight. And, uh, and, uh, and every year she was like, you don't get it together. I'm going to send you to military school. Like, I work hard. And when I was nine, she started giving me brochures and showing she wasn't playing around. So I look at the brochures and, and her threats kept coming, but, but she never sent me, but she wasn't not sending me because she makes empty promises. Like my mother does not make empty promises. Right. She wasn't sending me because she couldn't afford it. And finally, when I was 13, uh, she was literally taking collections from, from people in her church and asking them, could they help out? And she was going to be thousands of dollars short again. So she thought this would be another year that she couldn't do it. And, um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, my grandparents ended up taking, taking money out of their home. They ended up doing refi of their home and taking the money out and giving it to my mom. Uh, and they lived in this little small home in the Bronx. Um, but they figured out a way to make it that it was worth enough that they could actually give me a chance to, to, you know, to have a, to have a, to have a chance. And, um, it actually really hits me still when I even think about it, because it's like, yeah. when you have people who believe in you like that, I mean, it's a big deal. There's no better, there's no better feeling than that. Nothing. And, um, and so I, I, I go, so I go to this military school and, uh, and I hated every minute of it. When I, I mean, I literally ran away five times in the first four days at the school. I mean, I couldn't stand that place, anything about it. Um, but, but there was something about that place that just gave me a different understanding of what it meant to be relevant. And, um, and honestly, that, that, that thing was leadership. Where when people say, well, yeah, wasn't it about that they gave you discipline or they woke you up early or they made you do push-ups? I mean, yeah, I mean, Yes, they woke up early. Yes, you did push-ups. <laughs> All that was real, right? But that wasn't, that wasn't the secret sauce, right? What right. happened was very early in the process, they put you in charge of something. And it starts off something small. And then, then you have this graduated responsibility, right? And every single year, you're responsible for something bigger than yourself, right? And you start off with a squad. Then you get a platoon. Then you get a company. Then you get a battalion. And I fell in love with that, right? I fell in love... You know, I fell in love with the desire to have the ball in my hands in the fourth quarter. Absolutely. You no, know, I fell in love with the with the idea that you had a whole team that was looking at you for guidance and you had to provide it. You had to be the right. example. You had to set the tone. And so it, that was the thing that I think gave me uh, something that I don't think I was getting from other places was it really was this ability to to demand leadership. And to step into it and to be excited about it because it was something that I fed off of and I yearned for. So were you, did you feel like you were forced to learn that? Yeah. Or, well, it, just, or, it, hap- or it just happened, once you got there, it happened naturally. Well, I think what they do is they want to put you in, they want to put you in charge of something small and then they want to watch you grow. Right. And they want to teach you the importance of it. So for example, you know, if, uh, you know, if we're in the same company, right. And they're like, all right, you know, you know, Anthony, you're now going to be a team leader 
in, in this squad and I'm a member of your team and you see me, you know, you know, drinking a bottle of water or whatever like that. And I throw the bottle above the bottle of water on the ground. You know, you're not going to be like, oh, that's OK. You can be like, hey, more. You come and scoop me up because you're like, hey, right. I'm not going to get in trouble because you can't find a trash can. Absolutely. And they notice accountability. that. Right? They're like, it's accountability. Right. And they notice that like, all right, you know, Anthony's on this thing. And so now they're like, OK, Anthony, now you're a squad leader. Now you're in charge of five people. And let's say I'm in your squad and let's say I show up five minutes late for class. They're not going to walk up to me and say, more, why are you late? They're going to walk up to me and say, more, who's your squad leader? Mm. And they're going to come find you. And they're going to be like, Anthony, more was five minutes late for my class today. Why? Well, you need to have an answer because you're in charge. And so there's this, there's this responsibility that you now have that you're like, all right, you know what, more, you're going to be five minutes early for class tomorrow because I'm not going to get <laughs> ten, in trouble. Ten minutes, ten minutes early. Ten minutes early. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, it, but it's like, but there's this, there's this responsibility that you feel and that they, that they, they provide the platform for. But then the natural nature is we grow into it. And then we find ourselves that it's not just when we sit in the seats, that these are the seats that, that, that we're ready for, that these are the seats that were made for us. And that's why I think it gives us the opportunity to, to, to grow in that environment. So you, you grew and you had to be a leader because of the consequences. And it was, it was, coming, it was coming back on you. It, it was, was coming, coming back. back on you. And, the, and right. the reality is, is that, you know, there's so many other systems within our society that do the same thing. You know right, what I mean? Absolutely. Like, you know, it's, you know, and I, it, it, it's interesting because when you look at, when you look at basic codes that, you know, people live in and exist in, uh, you know, whether you're talking about in neighborhoods and streets or whether you're talking about Fortune 500 companies or, or military organizations, they're the same codes. It's the same right. graduated sense of responsibility that, that are provided, that people walk into. And, and so I just feel like in many ways, I got something that was coming my way in the first place that was coming my way. But it just gave me a different environment to let it flourish. Absolutely. So, fo- so following, following Military Academy, uh, you, you ended up at, uh, I think, John Hopkins, yeah. uh, af- after which you studied in London as a, as a Rhodes Scholar. Like, you was, you, was just doing, you was just doing your thing. You <laughs> was just going crazy. Uh, how, how do you go from, like, having issues in school to becoming you know, Rose Scholar, like, like, how does that happen? How, mm-hmm. I need to know the mindset of how that happened. You know, honestly, you, you want to know how it happened? I don't know. I don't know if you can see that. I can see that. But see that's, that. uh, you, in fact, you, you probably know who it is, but, uh, but for everybody else, that's a guy named Kurt Schmoke. Kurt Schmoke is the former mayor of Baltimore City. And how it happened was this, was that I was a student in Baltimore and, uh, and I got an internship with the mayor of Baltimore. Right. And during my second internship with the mayor of Baltimore, this was the last, this was the last day of my internship. And what wow. was amazing was that, so Kurt Schmoke was not the type of guy that had like paparazzi following him around or anything like that. I mean, he wasn't that type of mayor. Not um, at all. At all. At all. Right. <laughs> but, but it just so happened that on the last day of my internship with him, um, I was in his office and the city hall photographer happened to be in there. And, uh, and he said to me, he said, have you ever heard of the Rhodes Scholarship? And I said, I'd heard of it because I knew he was a Rhodes Scholar. And he's like, let me show you something. And he goes over, and as you see in the picture, he goes over to his wall and he's pointing to something. That thing wow. he's pointing at is the picture of his Rhodes Scholarship class. And it was during that meeting that he told me, he's like, I want you to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. And I went back and I did my research 
and I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship. And then months after that, after that conversation, I was named a Rhodes Scholar. Wow. And it's one of these things where not often do some of the most important moments in your life get caught on camera. That was one of those moments where one of the most important moments in my life got caught on camera because that was when he told me about an opportunity that would later on change my life. Because, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I did not, it, it exposed me to a world that I didn't even know existed. It exposed me to doors that I didn't even know, you know, how to open doors that I didn't even know were out there. Introduced me to people that I had no idea that I'd ever get a chance to be, you know, in their presence that would actually know my name. You know, so it's like, I think about that. And the reason I keep that picture on my desk is I think it just goes and shows the importance of who are those people in our life who at the right moments and at the right times change the trajectory of our life without even realizing it, whether it's a coach, whether it's a minister, whether it's a family member, whoever it is, uh, a teacher. Um, but that was one of those moments when, uh, when, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, here's a, you know, here's this, you know, Here's this kid, here's this kid coming up, a kid right now coming up in like it coming up in Baltimore. But um, but I wanna I wanna tell him about something that uh that helped to change my life and now I think can help change his. And that's exactly what he did. Wow. And big, big shout out to the mayor too. Cause yes. I, I was I was in Baltimore when he was when he was the mayor. So I knew what I knew what was going and he on. Had, he had a tough go. He had a tough go. He was he was he was a tough one. He was a tough one. Yeah. It's crazy because he, he had a on, on McCullough Street and McMeckin. It was it was that's uh, you know supposedly he was that was his house. So he was living right there in the in the, in the middle of the hood, yep. right next to us. So it was just good to be able to you know touch and see him and see him get up every morning while we walking right. to school. He going to work. So that's what made it. You know he he, he was a big factor, a big key in, in in our community talking about Baltimore. So. That's right. Yo, big shout out, big shout out to the to the mayor for that. Yes. What things along along your your path though, right? That now that you can look back on 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 just that experience. Like what are some of the positives, even though like they may have been negatives at the time because you maybe you knew or maybe you didn't know. Like you said, you spoke about the role scholar. You understood it, yeah. but you didn't. You didn't know all of that came with that. Yeah. So what? What? What are some of the positives, even though that they may have been negatives uh, at the time? You know, I, I got to tell you, man. It was. I think it was also around that time that I realized that I was going to devote my life to public service. That I was going to devote my life to being a voice to trying to be able to address so many of the challenges that we just continue to see, you know, in our, in our, in our, in our lives and in our environments and our circumstances, because I looked at, at my life and I knew that I was such a statistical anomaly. You know, I was such an exception from so many of the other kids that we're coming up with where you look at your life where you're like, you know, you're such an exception from so many of the kids that you came up with. And, and, there's a real, there's a real discomfort in that exceptionality, right? There's a, there's a discomfort in the fact that while, why we as a society are comfortable with the idea that some make it, but most don't, that some can pull out, but so many have no shot, have no pathway. 
And I think that it was one of these things where I found myself um, really humbled and thankful and blessed for the fact that I was now seeing things that my family never even knew to tell me about. And at the same time, I found myself feeling complicit, where I found myself feeling that if I am not spending my time and my energy and my focus trying to change those dynamics, then it's almost like the blessing was spoiled on me. Mm. Like it should have been given to somebody else. If you're just going to focus on how this benefits me. And so I think it really was in that time and in that moment where, um, you know, I was trying to figure it out professionally. I was trying to figure out what else I'm going to do. I find myself in these new environments and these new rooms with very head spinning and all this kind of stuff. But the thing that actually rooted me, the only thing that felt right, the only thing that, that felt comfortable was when I got back to the idea of saying and looking back and talking to friends, talking to family, going back to old neighbors and saying, so what is it that we're supposed to do that can actually change destinies of people? And where it's not the exception, right? I mean, there's, I remember, you know, this, there's, uh, I think oftentimes of this story of, you know, kind of like the starfish. And, um, you know, that story of the kid who's on the, on the beach, the starfish, throw starfish in water, throw starfish in water. And the guy looks at the kid and there's these thousands of starfish on the beach. And the guy looks at the kid and is like, do you really think you're making a difference? And the kid reaches down and picks up a starfish and throws a starfish back in the water. And he says, I did to that one. And it's, <laughs> right, and it's a beautiful story, right? It's a story about, the, you know, our personal impact on individuals. But at some point, should we not ask the question, but why are there thousands of starfish on the beach? At some point, we have to ask that question, too, and not just be satisfied with picking up the one starfish and throwing the starfish back in the water and feeling like we've made our contribution for the day. At some so it's point, deeper than we have that. to ask it's that deeper. question. That's right. It's deeper. It's that's deeper. Right. That's right. And that's, so that's what I think in that moment, um, that's what happened, where I just decided that for the things that I was going to spend my life doing, whether it was when I was you know, leading soldiers in, in, in combat in Afghanistan or whether when I started a business, you know, a successful business in Baltimore that was focused exclusively on helping first generation students and first and family students make it to and through college or whether it was running one of the largest, you know, nonprofit organizations in this country that the, the centering force, my tethering was going to be on how are we going to fix systems so we do not continually rely on individual successes to help us go to bed at night. That's deep. But you, you, the question that you proposed when you said, why are we not asking why there's so many starfish on the beach? Like, I don't like people have to really sit and really, you know, un unpeel those layers back to really get and find that answer, because that's a deep question. And those are some deep answers that would that would come from that. So I, I think people should take that. All my listeners that's listening, like really sit down and think about, you know, just that question. Why are there so many starfish uh, on, on, on the beach? So I think that's an important question. Um, speaking speak, speaking on, of, of your time in London, right, you decided to join the army uh, while, 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 you, while you was there. You served in I think it was, the, the, I want to get it right. I don't want, I want, I don't want to mess this one up, Wes. <laughs> it was the, the, the 82nd Airborne Division. There you go. There you go. Okay, okay. All the way. So, okay. So what, what, what spurred your, your interest to serve? Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I think there were, there were two big motivations for me to join the army. Um, and actually I first joined when I was, when I was 17 years old. Um, in fact, I wasn't old enough to sign the paperwork myself. Uh, my mother had to sign it for me. 
And uh, and I always say that after my high school, after my teenage years, she was more than happy <laughs> signing that paperwork and send me away. <laughs> uh, but um, I think there was two big reasons. One is, you know, they were going to help pay for college. Right. And that was very, very helpful. Um, and I think the other big reason, though, was. I felt like I had a certain level of, of commitment where, you know, when I was 13 and I got sent to military school, um, this was a place that at first, while I hated it, this was a place that actually did help to change my trajectory. And when at that time, when I was getting ready to finish high school and I was, uh, and I actually, I was, I was a pretty good ball player coming out of high school. Uh, and, uh, I was getting scholarship offers. I had a dream that one day Syracuse would recruit me, but, uh, you know, they didn't need me. <laughs> I was like, nah, we're not interested. So, uh, so I started looking around, I'm thinking about what it is I wanted to do. And, um, and the thing that just kept on coming back to was I was like, you know, I, I like, I like leadership and I wanted to lead soldiers. I like leading cadets and now I want to lead soldiers. And so it was very natural for me to say, I, I, I think I want to join the army because so many of the people I admired, and particularly so many of the men in my life that I admired at that point. These were people who I met through the military school. These are people who wore the uniform, right? So I was like, I think that's what I want to do. And so I joined the army there. But but honestly, Melo, I mean, when I when I first joined, we weren't we weren't a nation of war. Mm. You know, we were we were I, I I joined when I joined, I was an infantryman and, and you know there was there was Kosovo going on. That wasn't a war for infantrymen. And so that it, it really, it was one of these things where I thought like I joined the military, we do the training, we do that type of thing. But, but frankly, I had no idea that war would happen so soon because it was, you know, months after I graduated from college was 9-11. And, and I saw how quickly we mobilized. I saw how quickly so many of the soldiers who I trained with, so many soldiers I went through airborne training with and advanced camp with and everything else that I went through all my training with. Um, they were now getting ready to head to Afghanistan. And, uh, and, and so it just became a very, very different dynamic at that point. And I, and I, and I remember I got the Rhodes Scholarship um, months before 9-11 happened. And the, milita- and the Army actually had a conversation with many of the, the Rhodes Scholars. There were about, I think there were three Rhodes Scholars that year who were in the military, were in the Army. And the Army told us, hey, listen, finish your degree. Don't worry about it. We know where you are. Uh, when, when your time is up, we'll come, we'll come get you. And I remember I was working in finance in London, uh, after I finished up my studies at the Rhodes scholarship. And I got a phone call from a guy at that time. His name was major Mike Fenzel. Now he's, now he's two-star general Mike Fenzel. And, uh, and he called me up and he's like, how's it going? And I'm sitting there, I'm wearing like my suit and tie, you know, I'm sitting there like in London, you know, with a corporate credit card and I'm like, it's good. And, and, and he said to me, he said, um, he said, when are you going to join the fight? Wow. It was like indicting. <laughs> it was straight up because this is a guy. I mean, I had known Mike for years. Like we trained together. Like he was a mentor of mine, everything. And he was now working on his second deployment. And when he said that to me, Melo, he was like, "So when are you going to join the fight?" I was like, I mean, he literally left me speechless. And I remember, and, I went and, back. and, not, and, and not, not to cut you off, when you yeah. say, "When are you going to join the fight?" Like elaborate on that. Like when somebody comes and say, "When are you going to join the fight?" In those terms, in that in that sense, what did he mean by? When are you going to join the fight? I'm so glad you asked that because you're right. He, he wasn't just talking about, you know, war or whatever like that. Right. His point was just like, so when are you actually going to 
involve and engage in, in, in the light in your life's mission. And like in this idea, when I was telling about what I was doing and I was like, you know, it's, it was, it was fine. And I was, it was interesting and I was learning a lot, but he's like, but, but this isn't your fight. That's not your fight. That's something you're doing because, you know, it comes easy to you. Mm-hmm. That's not your fight. And this was something where I was like, you know, I, I mean, I, I trained with them, with these men and women, you know, we went through, we went through hardships together. And, and it's one, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like going through, going through, you know, preseason. And then when the season starts, you're like, no, nah, I'm, I'm, that was great, but I'm good. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know? So <laughs> when he said that to me, he was like, when are you going to join the fight? I, I literally went back and I thought on it for a while and I prayed on it for a while. And, uh, and I got back in touch with him and I was like, I'm in. And so I ended up, I ended up leaving finance to go back with the 82nd Airborne Division. And then we trained up for a while and then I, and that's when I deployed with the 82nd Airborne Division over to Afghanistan. Wow. That's, the, listen, we got gems coming from this conversation. When are you going to join the fight? That's, uh, that's deep. Join the fight. That's deep. And today it wasn't about, you know, warring and, 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 right. and going to fight. It was, it was, it was a deeper meaning behind the word fight right. and, what, and, what the, and what that really meant. Because that's again, right. you realize at that point it took somebody to be stern and be direct with you and to challenge you to say, when are you going to join the fight to make you realize and think like, damn, I really, you know what? This is my fight. This is my I got to go. I got to go do what I got to do. I've been fighting for this all my life. I'm going to go do what I, I'm going to go do what I have to do. So, but I got to tell you, Miller, and it's one of these things where, and it's one of the reasons that I have so much respect for how you always carried yourself. Because, you know, whether it is, whether it is, you know, marching and fighting and building around, around, uh, around police accountability, or whether it's challenging the issue of the status quo of poverty that we continue to allow within our society, you have always used your voice and been part of the fight. Absolutely. And so there's just, there's, there's, there's this beautiful thing in this beautiful moment where I think for all of us, where we find ourselves in these moments where we have to challenge ourselves and, and, and where there is this point, there is this point where it means potentially a compromise of comfort or it means potentially a compromise of an opportunity or it means potentially a compromise of an endorsement or it means potentially a compromise of whatever it is. But it's like, but that question still gets brought up, but are you going to get in the fight? Right. And that's meaningful and that matters. And you've always done that. Well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm still trying to. I'm still trying to fight. I'm still trying to keep up with keep up with my fight. At the end of the day, so yes, I, I, I appreciate. I appreciate that. Let's talk about your book. You, you, you. You know, a lot of people know. Um, and I hope they know, and I hope they've read your your, your books because your books is in, incredible. Thank you. Um, that that you 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 also an extremely accomplished author, right? You you have some of the the most incredible work out there, um, in, including New York, you know, bestseller, um, the other Westmore, uh, which, which by the way, it, I had to really think about that at first when I first heard that the other Westmore. I started googling like, damn, who's oh, okay? I got it. I, I understood that. <laughs> Um, which, which, you know, the, the, the book has, has, has such a powerful premise behind it, man. And, uh, would, would you mind just breaking, you know, breaking it down for anyone in our audience who, 
who who's not familiar with 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 that one? Absolutely. So, uh, in fact, it was uh, the day after I received the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, the Baltimore Sun, which is our hometown paper, uh, you know, wrote wrote this article uh, about about this local kid who just received uh, who just received this Rhodes Scholarship, and it talked a bit about my childhood and my background. Uh, it talked about how literally where you know. 10 years ago, I was sitting there with handcuffs on my wrists. 10 years later, I'm now receiving a Rhodes Scholarship to go over to England. And it talks about the journey and what happened over that decade. Um, and at the same time, they were writing a whole series of articles about four guys who walked into a jewelry store. And uh, the first two walked in with guns. The second two walked in with mallets. And they got everybody on the ground. And, um, and when they they started breaking glass and taking out jewelry and, and got a little over $400,000 worth of jewelry. And they all four then ran out of the store. And one of the people that was in the store that day um, was a off-duty police officer who was moonlighting as a security guard. And he got up off the ground and he ran outside to see if he could stop the guys from getting away. And when he ran outside, he started kneeling next to cars and vehicles to give himself cover. But he didn't realize that one of the cars that he was kneeling next to was one of the cars that the guys were in. And he was, uh, and he was shot uh, at point blank range, and he was killed instantly. And there was a twelve day national manhunt for those four guys, and finally, after after twelve days, all four were caught. And one of the people that the police were looking for, that was eventually captured and tried and convicted and sentenced for the crime, was a guy, was a guy whose name was also Westmore. And the more I learned about him, the more I learned about this crime, the more I learned about this tragedy, the more I realized how much more we had in common than just our names, where we both grew up in single parent households. We both had academic and disciplinary troubles coming up. We both uh, we, we were both living, living around the same area when he was actually caught. Um, we were around the same age. And, um, and I knew that I had questions. He was the only one that could answer them. So one day I just decided to write him a note. And I wrote him at, and I wrote him, wrote to him at Jessup Correctional Institution, which, uh, which you know, but for people listening, it's uh, about about twenty miles outside of Baltimore, of Baltimore City. And um, and about a month later, I got a letter back from Jessup from Westmore, wow. and that one letter turned to dozens of letters. Those dozens of letters turned to dozens of visits. Uh, you know, I, my friendship with Wes is now going on. You know, almost two decades. He's now in year twenty of his life sentence. Wow! And um, and the story is really about these two boys uh, and this journey, and what ends up causing this split amongst these two kids that, in many ways, are just trying to navigate manhood in their own way, but just oftentimes find uh, our pathways pretty unforgiving. And what that looks like when you have this marriage, when you have you know, this, 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 uh, this combination of societal and personal responsibility, but just more importantly, how thin that line is between our life and somebody else's life. That book is incredible. And, and, I, and I hope the listeners and my listeners, uh, you know, go and, and really get my book too, but really get the, you know, really, really, really read the other Westmore, man, because I, I just think that you know, if, if you was to put your book side by side by my book, it would be almost like my book is like the prequel to what you're writing. That's exactly like it's, right. it's, it's the it's the prequel exactly right. to your story, the other Westmore. So like I when I read it, I'm like, oh yeah. Like you actually inspired me to 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 want to start writing, 
even without you know a, a close friend of ours, D Watkins, it's like D is like, look, we have to we have to tell the story, but we have to tell it the way that it is. And you, and your book was a reference on how we structured our book and the way that we talked alongside with with D Watkins, you know, books as well. So yeah. I just want to say thank you, man. Keep keep writing, keep writing the way that you're doing. Yes, but, sir. but with and that, big up to D Watkins too. Big up absolutely, to big up to D Watkins. What 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 initially uh, initially prompted you to to want to write though? Because we we talking about writing. What what why, what made you want to start writing? You know what's wild, Melo, is is I didn't want to because I have no background in writing. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't trained in writing. I didn't go to school for writing. I didn't do any of that stuff. Um, and I had a, uh, I have a, a dear friend, a woman named Terry Williams um, and big up to Terry. Um, and, and she, she said to me, she was like, and she's like a real writer. She's written like multiple books. Right. And, um, and she said to me, she said, uh, I think there's a story here. I think there's a book here. I was like, yeah, Terry, I was like, I don't, I don't have time to write. I don't, I don't want to dig that deeply in Wes's life. I don't want to dig that deeply in my own life. I don't want to share it. But she just knew about my, my relationship with Wes. And, um, and eventually, I went to talk to Wes about it. And I remember having the conversation with him. and I'll, I'll never forget it. But I went to Wes and I said, um, you know, someone wants, me to, someone wants me to write this story. And like without hesitation, he was like, you need to do it. And he said, and, and then he said, which I won't forget, he said, listen, I've wasted every opportunity that I've ever had. And he said, and if you can do something to help people understand the consequences for their decisions, but also do something to help people understand the neighborhoods that these decisions are being made in, then you should do it. And that then became the fire and the focus behind the entire initiative, where literally I would wake up early in the morning, wake up at like 5.15, 5.30 every morning. And I would just write for a couple hours before going to work. And, um, and, and some days it was, some days it was flowing. Some days like, like it was just going. And some days I just sat there and I was like, I got nothing today. And, but that didn't mean go to bed. That didn't mean, you know, you know, whatever that meant. Then you sit there and you wait and then tomorrow you try again. And it took, it took about two years, I mean, a little over two years to get that first book written. Um, but it was one of these things where Wes's words and Wes's motivation, it just kept sitting with me when he was like, if you can do something to help people understand the consequences of their decisions, but also do something to help people understand the neighborhoods that the decisions are being made in. And that then became everything that I needed to know and everything I needed to keep focusing on in order to actually get it done. Have all your books, oh, let me ask you this, have all your books been inspired by your own your own journey mm. or has it been other you know things that influence you to you know outside of your own journey that that influence you to write these books well all your books at, at that yeah no it's, it's a really good question um I, I would say i would say yes in many ways because the work was a book that i wrote that was almost like uh that was almost like my journey into understanding the difference between your occupation and your work where your occupation is where you go every day and where you get your paycheck from and all that kind of stuff, right? But your work is when your greatest passions meet the world's greatest needs. And so I wrote, I wrote a book about that that was really kind of influenced, influenced, uh, you know, influenced my journey that way. Um, where, where, and then Five Days was really a book that really more so was about the five days surrounding the funeral for Freddie Gray here in Baltimore. 
And I wanted to tell that story really through the eyes of eight different people. Wow. Um, and kind of a, a wide variety of different people, whether it was, uh, you know, whether it was uh, a, a police officer, a guy named Mike, Mark Partee, who grew up in West Baltimore, um, but who, who said, you know, I remember where he said to me, he's like, you know, I know that none of my colleagues woke up that morning with homicide in their mind, but I know why, if I say that to a kid in West Baltimore, why he doesn't believe me. Oh, indeed. Absolutely. No? Or you know, or whether it's talking to a guy, uh, another another person that I, that I, that was followed was a, was a guy named Greg Butler, and Greg Butler was a high school basketball star in Baltimore, uh, but because of a because of a glitch in the school system, uh, ended up losing his scholarship, and so he literally went from basketball star in Baltimore to a guy to a, a, a young man protesting, and in fact, there's a, the infamous story that the the person who cut the fire hose. Uh, as, they're put, as, a, as a fire department was trying to put out the fire, one of the fires, that was Greg Butler. And yeah. how you go from yeah. being a Baltimore star, a basketball star, to literally being the guy who's cutting the fire hose saying, burn it, let it burn down. So it's like, so watching all these different, the, these, uh, these different individuals, these beautiful stories and how it all collided around that five day period, that was really, you know, really five days. But even with that, there was a bit of personal touch to it because much of the book um, is actually laced in with a lot of my story and my feelings and reflections about the fact that, that this, was, this was my hometown that was going through so much pain. And at the same time, I found myself where as much as I felt like, you know, we were fighting for the right things and we were advocating for the change that needed made and all that kind of stuff, I still looked at my existence, and it goes back to what I before, I still looked at my existence and felt a real feeling of complicity for the fact that we have so much disparity within our society and asking the question, am I really doing enough to be able to address it? And so I, I think in many ways, um, writing for me has become very calming and, and, and cathartic. You know what I mean? Like It's my way of being able to have a, an uninterrupted conversation with the people. Where I can just and with yourself thoughts. and with yourself and too. with myself and, and with, with myself. yourself. That's exactly. I've, right. I've, I've, I've experienced that because for the longest, I've never wanted to write my book, tell my story, you know, from 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 that perspective of, of what it was like growing up, because I just felt like we all go through the same thing. What made me yes. different? What made my what made my story different than, than everybody else? But I also understand on the flip side of that, that there's people who really need to hear that. Yes. You know, so as I'm writing, I'm like, okay, but I, I really got to give it to you the way that I'm sitting down. If I went back to Myrtle Avenue today and sat down and had a conversation with you, this is how I would be talking to you. This is this would be our dialogue. And that's what I've learned about, you know, writing that book and just that process. It's very therapeutic. That was my first time actually doing it. But you learn a lot about just stories and time and history and, and things like that, but you also learn a lot about yourself because you're on the outside, you know, look, looking in at, at, at that point. And that's the thing. And that's the thing. If you didn't go through that process, you probably would have never gone through that process. Oh, for sure. Never. You would have never, never sat down and actually thought about your life in, in a sense of reflection or said, you know what, let me really take a moment and think about these years or these moments or these people. Because life moves so fast for people mm. and they never take the time to actually slow it down a little bit and pause. And it's the beauty of the process you just went through is you actually forced yourself to do something 
that every single person should do in some way, shape, or form. And it's, Absolutely. And it, it took me 20 something years mm. to, to, to come to this point to say, I'm, I'm ready to talk about that story. Yeah. And, and feel good about it. You know, you, I, I feel, I feel yeah. good about it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Before we move on, I, I definitely um, want, want to talk about your time as CEO of, of, of Robinhood. Um, we, you, you, you were the CEO of the, it, it was the organization from, you know, 2017 up until, I want to say this past, this past yeah, May. A few months ago. And, and yeah, and, and, and accomplished uh, an, an unbelievable amount. Like you, you personally, I want to say you personally raised $650 million. And, and and oversaw, you know, I, I really want to like put light on this. What I'm about to say, um, you 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 really raised 650 million dollars, um, and you oversaw the, the coronavirus relief efforts and, and and launched new initiatives like like the Power Fund, which was which was major. Congrats to that. Thank you. How did how, how like how did your own upbringing, you know, like influence your interest in working for, like. That organization, I know you said public safety and, and, you know, that that was your thing back in the day. But how did that influence, like, your interest in working for for, for that organization? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when when uh, when they first came to me and they're like, we'd like you to be the CEO of Robin. And I, you know, I just finished having a, you know, having a, a successful exit for, uh, for, uh, you know, an enterprise that I was running. And, and I first said to him, I was like, I don't think this makes sense to me because I was like, y'all are based in New York. And I was like, and I'm a Baltimorean, I'm a Marylander and I'm not moving. And I was like, second thing is I was enjoying what I'm doing. And the third thing I was, I was like, I've been pretty critical of philanthropy in the past. And they're like, yeah, it's all over YouTube. We've seen it. <laughs> and they're like, but they're like, but that's actually why one of the reasons why we want to come talk to you is that we think a lot of what you're saying isn't wrong. And really the approach that I wanted to take to the work was to say, it'll never be good enough if we just simply rely on our ability to give money, right? Where I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, during our time, you know, we allocated close to three quarters of a billion dollars in education and housing and, 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 and food insecurity and all those type of things um, that we, we were able to distribute over $80 million just in relief, just in COVID funds. And that was like cash assistance, food assistance, making sure the people that were intentionally left out of cash assistance were actually getting the assistance that they, that they needed, that we built a policy way because um, we're able to address the structural and systemic issues um, to include things like adjustments to the child tax credit, that we were able to create the power fund, which was allocating capital north of around $18 million exclusively to organizations that were led by people of color. Because organizations led by people of color, particularly organizations led by black folks, were intentionally left out of the funding dynamic. But the thing that I also realized in that whole large dynamic, though, was, um, you know, it was this. And this was really the push where, uh, you know, after five really successful years at Robinhood that I decided to come back and run for governor of Maryland was, you know, it was like that my birth state, you know, the place, my hometown, it was so representative of so many of the joys and so many of the sorrows that I saw in our society that, you know, that we had these amazing opportunities that we were able to delve into and fund and support 
but there are also these remarkable inequalities and inequities where how do you have the best schools in the country that are sitting side by side to some of the most underfunded and underperforming? How do you, how do you hospitals that literally people from come from around the world to go get treatments in, but people in the state, they can't afford to get treated in Right, right. And so, and so how, so really, I think the, the, the Robin Hood, uh, the Robin Hood experience was really powerful because I felt like, you know, we were doing, we were doing such good work and we were moving at a pace and at a clip that the organization had never moved in before, but it also was a distinct reminder that good deeds alone will never lead you out of darkness. And that if you, if you are not actually focusing on the systems that's creating the fact that we, that we do have that 24% of people who lost their jobs due to COVID-19 were people who were living in poverty before COVID-19, i.e. the working poor, right? If you aren't actually addressing the systems that created the fact that around 60% of high, of high school freshmen in Baltimore City were chronically absent during the COVID years, they missed, 80, they missed 30% or more of the school year. If you aren't addressing the fact that we watch people who were in jobs and we watched 11 years of job growth go away in 11 weeks, there's no philanthropy that's going to fix that. Right. And until we understand that, then we will repeatedly just find ourselves cleaning up the debris that comes from broken systems. We'll repeatedly find ourselves picking up the starfish. And which which I was just, water. I was just about to say that. Why? Which comes, which which brings it back full circle. Why there's so many starfish? Why there's so many on, starfish? on on a beach? So it, it's it's great that you just you just tied that. And then for the for the for the listeners who who's listening, who may not be familiar with uh with with with, with the Robin Hood, um, Robin Hood is 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 the largest. I want to say this: the largest uh poverty fighting nonprofit organization in New York. So I I just wanted to bring a light to that. And, we, and, and when I became CEO, we uh, we started funding outside of New York. And it was really because it was highlighting the fact that 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 poverty is not a New York issue alone. And in fact, we launched something called Mobility Labs, which focused on addressing economic mobility in urban, rural wow. and suburban areas. The first place we invested in outside of New York. Baltimore. Be more. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I was, I, I, was, I was waiting for you to touch on that a little bit. I, I wanted you to bring it up, not me. I wanted you to bring that up. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an it accident. Was, I, of, of course not. It, it shouldn't be. Absolutely not. Um, let's 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 bring it back uh to, to kind of what you're what you're focused on. So we 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 switch gears uh a little bit before we close out. Like we we definitely have to talk about um, yeah, your candidacy, like we have to, Thank and you. Um, you know, congratulations with that. I know that's a that's a ma- that was a major announcement. Uh, it's a, it's another major step that that you would be taking uh, in your life. But I I feel like you've done the work already. You know, you 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 you've fought the fight. You know, before, so you understand. You know the ins and outs and, and what it's going to take to lead. Uh, it's not going to be easy, but you understand you understand what it what what it takes. Uh, you announced in June that that you'll be running for governor of Maryland. Uh, what what made you want to pursue you know life in politics? Yeah, I you know the, I think the thing that really made me want to want to pursue it is looking at the situation that we find ourselves in now. That we really do find ourselves at a breaking point. You know, we find ourselves at a, at a larger breaking point when we see how the inequity just continues to show itself in what is one of the wealthiest states of this country. And it's also one of the most unequal. 
where if you if you look at, you know, for example, uh, uh, Raj Chetty is a professor at, at Harvard University, did a 20 year longitudinal study for if you happen to be a young black male who was born into poverty, where were the best places and the worst places in the country for you to have the chance to not die in poverty? Two of the best places in this country were in the state of Maryland. The worst place in this country was also in the state of Maryland. Absolutely. When we look at the dynamics that are existing in urban and rural and suburban environments within the state and the challenge of economic inequity that exists, that the thing that made me say, I'm going to run for governor and not only are we going to win, we're going to change the dynamics of it, is that how do we actually create mechanisms of economic opportunity, measurements of work and wages and wealth that everybody can benefit from. Because we know that what we saw during, during, the, during this time of COVID-19 was not just an exacerbation, it was an exposure. It was an exposure to the fact that so many of these economic systems that are in place are systems that were flawed and, actually, and actively working against people for them to have an opportunity. And, that, and whether, you're talking about, whether you're talking about in Allegheny County or in Frederick County, whether you're in, over in Western Maryland, whether you're talking about Somerset County or Dorchester County and in the Eastern Shore, whether you're talking about Baltimore City or Baltimore County, or whether you're talking about Prince George's County or Calvert County, that we have in, down in Southern Maryland, that there are dynamics that exist within our state. That is a state of 6.2 million people in one of the most affluent states in the country. But at the same time, we know that we will not succeed and we will not grow if all of us are not growing. Absolutely. And so, 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 so my focus was saying, how do we take a very unique lane and a very unique lens on this for the fact that, you know, I was like, I've had a chance to lead in every sector of our economy, whether it's leading soldiers, whether it's running a business, whether it's running, you said, one of the largest nonprofits in this country. I've had a chance to lead throughout these various sectors. And I know that if we are not willing to be bold and if we're not willing to be future facing, in the way we're talking about these issues, then we will continue having the same problems. And there was this, you know, this, di- this dynamic uh, in, in the military that you know, we always talked about this idea that we don't leave people behind. You know, we don't leave people behind, ever. In our missions, we do not leave anybody behind. And, and the thing that I wanna push forward in our race, in our campaign, is saying, and our state shouldn't either. We should not be a place that's leaving people behind. And and that's I mean that's that that goes back to your your you know your resume and, and, and the work that you put in from from day one right and that's that's a military mindset that's the mantra that's you know that's that's the brotherhood that's what keep everybody together for life no one gets no one gets left behind and I think that message you know that I, I think that message will resonate with people in Maryland in particular in, in particular. Baltimore City. I only could speak for Baltimore City because we need that. We need that hope. We need somebody that, that's that's behind us and saying, "Look, I got y'all. Like this, I, I need to hear y'all. Like talk to me." Yes. And I, I think you know, because a lot of times we 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 the voiceless, you know, and we we're afraid to, you know, or we don't have the opportunity to tell what we want to tell and talk the way that we want to talk and 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 have those real, you know, organic, natural conversations that. People listen to us. You know, like you said, we are a powerful state. Yes. But a lot of times we it get overshadowed by a lot of the other things that, that goes on, especially 
in, in Baltimore City in particular. So I'm, I'm sure that message will, will touch home when you, when you start talking about the Baltimoreans in it. Yes, I sir. can vouch for that coming, coming, coming from the city. Yes, sir. So before, before we, before, before we, you know, kind of close out, uh, I, I just want to say, man, I, I sincerely like appreciate you being on here, man. But, uh, before Smile, I let you man. go though, I want to, you know, I want to bring it back to kind of what's in your glass a little bit and, and have a few quick fire questions for you, yeah. uh, to close us out. Uh, the people and I, what, 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 you know, I have to know what's in your glass uh, on some special occasions. I'm talking slow because I really want you to. I really want you to process the questions that I'm going to ask you. Um, when you when you're on a vacation, mm. what is your go-to? What, what what's in your glass? When I'm on vacation, <laughs> uh, my go-to is going to be Jamaican rum. Oh. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna be in I like I, I'm a, I'm a, I like Puerto Rican rum, but it's it's, it's Puerto it's Rican similar. rum is good too. <laughs> <laughs> Puerto it's, Rican rum is good too. But you, and I say because much of my family is is, is Jamaican, so absolutely. So when, I'm, when I'm on vacation, I'm hanging out with family. Uh, indeed, we got, indeed. I done had it. Listen, I done had it. I done had the Jamaican <laughs> rum. I, I know. I know what type of time it is with that. <laughs> when you're when you when you're out when you're out to dinner at a, at a nice restaurant. What's in your glass? You know what's in my glass? I love a good Pinot Noir. Oh, never fail you. I love a good Pinot Noir because when I think about, you know, when I when I think about, I mean, there's, you know, I, I love I love cabs and I and I love uh, wines of all forms, but I feel like Pinot Noir is the type of wine and a good Pinot mm-hmm. is the type of wine that no matter what your meal is, no matter who the crowd or the environment is. No matter how early or late at night it is, Pinot is always a good choice. It is just to stay steady and to stay steady consistent. I'm glad you said that. I, I appreciate that. Um, you 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 celebrating a big win, be that in in, in business uh, and publishing New York Times bestseller, like you've done multiple times over, uh, <laughs> or, or or any aspect of your life. Yeah. You know, you you celebrating a big win. You celebrating a, you know, becoming a governor of Maryland. What, 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 what's your go-to? What's in your glass? It's actually going to be two different things. Um, <laughs> uh, one is I'm uh, going to, uh, going to have, uh, I'm going to have a nice, a nice, uh, a nice rye. Oh. And uh, because I think when you think about rye, rye is just like the kind of, you know, it's the kind of drink that it is both the perfect settling and the perfect moment of reflection drink. Mm. And so I'm gonna go with a good ride, but 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 when I'm celebrating too, um, I know that I'll be drinking a nice ride, but I also know I'm gonna have a nice cigar with me too. Oh, for sure, you gotta you gotta you gotta have that. You yeah. have to have it's a must. So that's that's, must. The, that's gonna those two things are gonna have to complement <laughs> each other. One for one hand, one for the other hand, and that's a celebration for you right there. Yes, sir. Man, thank you, thank you so much, Wes, man, and for joining me, and and, and best of luck with everything you. You have going on right now. Thank you. Um, I, I'll be the first one to tell you uh, during this whole process and this journey, I'm here for you. You know, I, I have your back. We can always talk. We, you, you. You, 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 you know, you can find me. We can sit down and talk. Let's keep the conversation going. Let's keep the dialogue going because, like you said earlier, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. Yes, it's about everybody, and, and, and no man gets left behind. So I want to say thank you for that, for jumping on what's in your glass. Cheers. Big Cheers, shout man. out to the wineries in, in Maryland. I'm going to be checking you guys out. 
I need I need to, I need to figure this out. We we need to figure something out. But I appreciate you guys. Thanks again, man. And always, my brother. Peace. Peace. God bless you, brother. Keep leading. Keep leading. Indeed.